John, we didn't want to disrupt your communion and cause you to take the cup inappropriately by telling you that John is from Chicago and a Bears fan, so we had to, had to wait on that. I want to welcome all of you, especially if you're visiting today. If you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 37. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extras. Please feel free, just raise your hand, we'll give you a Bible. You're welcome to keep it, and we'd love to have you start reading the Bible with us. Two quick announcements. First of all, Pastor Bob and Pastor Austin are leaving Friday for a trip to Africa. So you can read about that on the back of um, the current. But be in prayer for them. It's an exploratory trip to see how we can be more involved in the ministry. Many of you know Pastor Celestin that's been with us a number of times. And then one other quick announcement. The deadline for if you're interested in helping with the summer missions trip this summer to help with Hurricane Harvey damage, the deadline is January 20th, so if you'll look on there, you can find out how to contact folks. I think we have four or five people already committed, but pray about that and see if the Lord might have that as something that he's put on your heart. It's a blessing to have so many godly people that the Lord's raising up here, and we're interested in bringing glory to Christ by making disciples. That's what he told us to do. So this morning, we're going to begin a new series from the book of Genesis, and we're going to actually finish the book of Genesis. So if you've been with us for a while, you know that we just go through the Bible verse by verse. I think that's the best way to learn the Bible. All of us can read the Bible. I don't care what color your Bible is as long as it's red on a regular basis. So be sure to read your Bible. That's really important. That's not something that only pastors do. And it's a discipline, but the Bible says man shall not live by bread alone. And if it's new to you, we'll teach you. We'll help you to learn how to read the Bible. But we've Going through Genesis 1 through 36, you can go back and listen to um, the messages online if you want to get caught up. But this morning we're going to start in chapter 37 and we're going to finish the book. And I want you to see that, first of all, these last 13 chapters are all one big unit. It's really the life of Joseph. And it's a wonderful story for all of us because it's a story about how someone experienced terrible suffering and then was able to see that God used it for good. And this is really important for a couple reasons. Number one, all of us probably know someone or have had something terrible happen to us. And we're trying to figure out why would God allow that to happen. And then secondly, if you've ever tried to, to bring other people to God, maybe an atheist or an explorer, you know that a number of the issues that they bring up, among the number of the issues, probably one of the top ones is, if there's a God, why is he letting all these terrible things happen, right? Either is he not strong enough to fix it, or is he so cruel that he doesn't care? And what we're going to find is that the Bible prevents a, presents a third option that has mystery. The Bible says the secret things belong to God, but it has this clarity that God planned for evil. It's part of his plan. He didn't just go, oh, what happened? It was part of his plan, but he planned that evil would happen through the voluntary choices of his creatures. In other words, he didn't create Satan to sin. It was Satan's fault. He didn't create Adam to sin. It was Adam's fault, but it was part of God's plan. And so the reason the world is full of evil is because Adam and Eve chose to sin. Satan chose to sin. But it's part of God's mysterious plan. Proverbs 16, 4 says, the Lord has created everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. So God doesn't think on our level. He's not as dumb as we are. He knows everything. The Bible says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, 
So his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And as we're kind of wandering through life, many people really don't even have a clue why they're here, where they came from, or where they're going. If you believe the Bible, you understand where you came from, why we're here, and where we're going to end up, depending on your decision. But I want to encourage you to read through the life of Joseph. Join with us as we read this. This morning we're going to go through chapter 37. But I've called it God meant it for good because at the end of Jacob's or Joseph's life, as he looks back over the terrible things that his brothers did to him, he said this, you meant it for evil. And he's not letting them off the hook. He's not going, oh, you don't have to answer to God. But he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so it really helps to understand that in life, things don't happen the way we planned. Sometimes terrible things happen. But if I can step back and say, wait a minute, God has promised his children that all things work together for good. That somehow, even in the midst of my sufferings, that there's this overarching theme of God's providence to work out his purpose in my life. And so as we begin this morning, I want to remind you that it's difficult to understand why God allows us to have terrible things happen. But as you're thinking about maybe someone who has cancer or losing a loved one or, or some terrible things that have happened to you, just be conscious as we read through the life of Joseph how this can help you to train your kids, to be reminded, okay, I don't know the whole story, and hopefully to grow as you're reading the Bible. The scripture says all scripture is profitable for teaching and correction and reproof and training in righteousness. So some of you, I hope, will even come into a relationship with God. You're not yet a forgiven follower of Christ as we read about the life of Joseph, as you listen, as we talk about the cross, as John just talked about it, that you'll become a believer and you'll become saved by God's grace through faith and you'll know the joy of having eternal life. So let's pray. Lord, bless your word as we study it now. All of us are here because you wanted us to be here. It's part of your appointment. And Lord, use your word now to strengthen us and to help us to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. The story starts with sibling strife and rivalry. Remember as my kids were growing up, when they weren't getting along, and some of them did better than others, remember somebody saying, don't worry, once they get out of the house, you know, they'll get along. And I'm like, that doesn't come for me. I want them to get along now. I'm glad maybe they will one day. But the story starts in a setting where there's intense rivalry, hatred, and jealousy, and favoritism. And I think that's one of the things that God's word appeals to us is because it meets us where we are. It's not this old-fashioned book. It, it, it wrestles with the same things we wrestle with. As you grew up, some of you have baggage from your childhood. You, you and your siblings. I mean, think about how the family is supposed to be that unit where you grow up and you learn how to live life. The problem is it's in the Petri dish of sinners. And so the story starts with this terrible, dysfunctional rivalry. So let's start in verse 1. Now Jacob lived in the land of <clears throat> where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. This is that promised land that God had given to Abraham and Isaac. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Ten times in the book of Genesis it has this phrase. These are the records. And this last section is really not technically really about Joseph, or Jacob. It's really about Joseph. So it says, Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. While he was still a youth, 
along with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wife. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now, for some of you, if you're just jumping in the story, you're like, wait, who's this? So you remember that Jacob, right, had two wives who were sisters, Rachel and Leah. Back then, they, some people had more than one wife. It wasn't good. But then he also had two other wives by whom he had 12 sons between those four women. But that one wife that he loved most preciously, which again isn't, isn't right, was Rachel. And she had two sons. At this point, she only had one, and that's Joseph. So, Joseph is the youngest. He's got older brothers, and you know how that goes. See, I, I'm, I don't prefer to be called the baby. I'm the youngest, but my parents had a philosophy. You keep trying till you get it right. <laughs> so, there you go, babies. Now, look at verse 3, he, or verse 2. He brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now, right away, you're going, uh-oh. I get this all the time. He hit me. Guess what he did, right? But this is, this is as they got older. I, you know, I wrestle with this. I don't know that I, I think he did anything wrong. I don't think he's a snitch here. You know, maybe his sons were ripping off the dad. Maybe they were plotting evil, but it was enough that Joseph said, hey, Pop, you need to know what, what some of your boys are doing. But now the, the, the problem thickens in verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And you're going, oh, that can't be good. Now, parents, I want to save you some grief. When your oldest says about the youngest as you're raising them, it's not fair. How come blah, blah, blah. Stop going, oh, no, no, we treat you all the same. Stop lying. You did not treat them all the same. The first kid was a guinea pig about which you were way over the top. You know, they couldn't drive till they were 25. By the time the last one's born, you're like, here, take the keys. But I'm only 12. So, <laughs> so sometimes, listen, this is, I want to be serious here. As a parent, it's okay to admit, and you should admit when you messed up, right? We get one shot at it. I'm so thankful for grandkids. I call it my redo, right? I pay for the first session of my kids' therapy. Then they're on my own, right? Or on their own. But, but think about this. Sometimes we do mess up, and he shouldn't have had this favoritism, but the Bible doesn't withhold the truth, and that was that he, he spoiled this son. He made him a very colored tunic. Now, this, this robe that you've all, if you've read the Bible, everybody has little kid stories. It, the only time this word is used, it was used of a princess's robe, so it was almost like a robe that, that, that looked like royalty. Now, imagine how that exasperated. The, the brothers already knew Man, he treats little so-and-so like a king. Now he makes him a little king's robe. Oh, my word, right? And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated him, okay? Now, three times in this passage, they hated him. That's going to say they hated him more. They hated him more, okay? Now, this is really important. We all have to wrestle with when you hate someone, Okay? And you're going to disciple others as you're raising your children. I mean, this, this happens. The Bible says, out of our hearts, proceed murder. We have the potential to hate. And maybe this morning, God's rooting out some hate in your heart. But these brothers hated him. And they couldn't speak to him on friendly terms. Literally, they couldn't speak to him in peace. And we all have to wrestle with that. You've been in a situation where 
either someone wouldn't talk to you, right? Or you wouldn't talk to someone else, right? So you're like, wow, yeah. And if that's not bad enough, verse 5 says, then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Joseph actually had two dreams, and these dreams were truly from God, okay? We have to be careful with dreams because most dreams are just dreams. But in the Old Testament, in, in, in the early church, God often revealed himself through dreams. And he still does at times, but we want to be very cautious. So, he said to them, please listen to this dream, verse 6. We were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheave rose up and stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Imagine your little punky brother says to you, basically, you're going to bow down to me. Then his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. They couldn't even stand his face, right? And that's the problem with hatred. You let it fester in there. The root of bitterness comes up, the Bible says, in our hearts. Then he had still another dream, and he related to his brothers. Lo, I, I had another dream, and this time the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed down to me. And now they're going, what, our whole family's going to, are you nuts? Verse 10, he related to his father and he told his brothers and his father rebuked him. He said, what is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and brothers actually come and bow down before you? But look what, look what this hatred then gave birth to, jealousy. Look at verse 11. And his brothers were jealous of him. Not that you've ever been jealous, but jealousy's ugly, and it's not easy to handle, is it, right? So those of you that are wrestling with jealousy, either it's going to be a, 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 a dominating master in your life, or you're going to have to learn how to give that over to Christ and let the Holy Spirit help you not to be dominated by jealousy. But notice it says his father kept this saying in mind. In other words... He kind of was like, well, you know what? Let's see how this thing plays out. Now, beginning in verse 12, I want you to see something that theologians call providence. It's God's extraordinary control of life's circumstances to work out his purposes. And we all kind of have to wrestle with this because we talk about, wow, what a stroke of luck. Boy, that was a stroke of luck. Or boy, I was fortunate that 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 happened, or what a coincidence. As you begin to read the Bible, it's really important to understand this, that there's no such thing as luck. That everything that happens in our lives is part of God's plan. The, the founding fathers of our country were what's called deists. And many of them, not all of them, but many of them just believe God sort of wound up the, the universe like a clock, and then he just kind of stood back and just like, okay, let's just let it happen. Now, it's kind of hard to fully understand this. Jesus says, not even a bird falls to the ground without your father knowing it. He upholds everything by his purpose. And, and it doesn't mean that God's going, oh, I want this person to be abused, so I'm going to send that person to do that. But there really is no such thing as luck. Now, let's not take that to extreme. I remember talking about a sporting event or beginning a sporting event with somebody. I said, all right, good luck. He goes, no, no, no. Don't you mean, Tom, good sovereignty? And I'm like, okay, dial it back. Like, like, we get it. But notice the providence of God. 
Joseph is looking for his brothers. But in this whole story, from Genesis 37 to 50, God's unfolding his purpose, and this was his purpose. When he appeared to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and then chapter 15, he said, listen, I'm going to give you this whole land. But the people who live in it right now are wicked, but, but they haven't reached the point of wickedness where I'm going to kick them out. So your little nation is going to have to go down to Egypt for 400 years. And you can read that in Genesis 15. This whole story is God's providence of getting Joseph down to Egypt so that he could bring Israel down to Egypt. In fact, when the psalmist wrote about this in Psalm 105, it said, he brought Joseph down to Egypt. So, so see in the providence of God, wow, this wasn't an accident. Look at verse 12. Then his brothers went to pasture their, their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come now and I will send you to them. Now right there, I, I think I would have said, Dad, could we just talk for a minute? They hate me. They don't even want to see my face. You really think that's a good idea? Maybe he did say that. As an obedient son, he said, I will go. He said, go see about the welfare of them and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Now, if you're learning to study the Bible, there's a map in the back of most Bibles or get a study Bible and you can just kind of look and trace. Okay, where was he? Where's Hebron? Where's Shechem? It's kind of fun. You sort of visualize where he's traveling. Now, here's where God's providence comes in. He's wandering around fields and forests and vales looking for his brothers. A man found him. Oh, what a coincidence. And behold, he was wandering in the field and, and the man said, what are you looking for? If this happened in Philly, he would have been like, you looking at me? You talking to me? But they were a little more civil back then, like they're in the South where they're kind. Um, hey, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they're pastoring the flock. Now, how in the world would this guy have a clue? I don't know who your sorry brothers are, but notice what it says. The man said, hey, they've moved from here. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Wow, God providentially let that guy hear 12 strangers shepherding sheep, or 11, going to Dothan. So Joseph jumps on that. Now, picture this. When you're reading the Bible, try to visualize in your mind. Here comes Joseph over a hill into the valley in Dothan. The brothers are down there. They probably got a campfire going. They're, they're cooking, having dinner. And they look up and they see some guy a few hundred yards away, and it's easy to know who it is because he's got that sorry coat on, right? So here comes somebody they can't stand, right? And so as they see him, verse 18 says, before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. Now, that might have been an interesting conversation. Is, it, is that Joseph? you got to be kidding me. He's probably coming to rat us out. I don't know who first offered the idea. Let's just kill him, right? And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of the pits and we will say, a wild beast devour him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. Even godless pagans, at that time, 
spoke of how wicked and evil it would be to kill one of your siblings. But this is a stark reminder that we all have that in our heart. Don't look at these guys and go, oh, these sorry animals. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned, this infestation of evil has been planted in our hearts. Don't forget, Cain killed Abel, right? And we ought not to look at this like, ah, these sorry animals. We all have the potential to do horrible things were it not for the grace of God in our lives. And who knows, there may be somebody here who has killed someone. I suspect that some of you, if you had an opportunity to kill someone without getting caught, you might have done it in a fit of anger. Nevertheless, it's hideous. So, verse 20. Come, let's kill him, throw him into the pit, and we'll, we'll say a wild beast devoured him, and then let's see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this. Now, Reuben was the oldest son, and back then, the firstborn son was responsible for the brothers. So he says, hey, let's not take his life. Reuben, Reuben said, shed no blood, throw him into this pit, don't lay your hands on him, that, that I might rescue him, but that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him. So he was going to throw him in a pit, go get him later and take him home. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped him of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. And they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water. Now again, picture this. Joseph's like, hey guys, hey, how's it going? You sorry. They're beating him, ripping it off him. What are you doing? What are you doing? They throw him into this dry cistern, this empty well. And this is pretty torturous when you think about it. It might, once commentary said, it probably would have been less barbaric just to run him through with a sword and finish him than throw him in a pit to, to, to die a slow death of, of hunger, starvation, and, and, and just, just pitif pitiful. And we're going to learn later that Joseph was screaming and begging for them not to do this. Then they sat down to eat a meal. Are they that messed up? I mean... You ever do something wrong and it just, you just lose your appetite? Your conscience is bothering you? Imagine just doing something this hideous and then going, hey, what are we having for dinner? And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to go down to Egypt. So along the, the plains of, of the nation of Israel, the Canaan, there was this travel route all the way from Mesopotamia. They go back and forth and bring trade down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, hey, let's not kill our brother and cover his blood. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he's our brother. And his brothers listened. Then some of the Midianites passed by, and they pulled him and lifted him out of the pit. Now maybe he, maybe he was like, oh, thank you, guys. Whew, I thought you were going to kill me. Right? But bam, as soon as they, they brought him out of the pit, they sold him for 20 shekels of silver. The, the, the psalmist said they bound his feet in, in fetters. And again, he's probably begging them, weeping, going, don't do this to me. I'll never see you again. What about dad? And they brought him into Egypt. And the thing about sin is, once you go down that road, right, sin begets more sin because now you've got to lie to cover your tracks. And some of you can really relate to this because you may already be in a mess and you're living a lie and you're just covering it with more lies. And I want to beg you to come out of that. Come out of that darkness. Don't, don't allow that because sin will just embrace you and take you down. But you come to Jesus and come out into the light. There's no mess that you've ever made that Christ can't repair. But covering it with lies. 
is just going to make it worse. So Reuben returned to the pit, and Joseph wasn't in the pit, so he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, the boy's not here. Where am I going to go? In other words, what am I going to tell dad? So they took Joseph's tunic. Look at this horrible lie. They slaughtered a male goat. They dipped the tunic in blood. They sent the tunic, brought it to their father, and said, please examine it. See, is this your son's tunic? And he examined it. And they said, a wild, he said, a wild beast has killed him. Now remember, this is his favorite kid. Verse 34 says, he tore his clothes and he put sackcloth on his loins. And he mourned for many days. You see, sometimes in American culture, we don't allow people to mourn. Like they would mourn 30, 60 days, right? But in this case, he refused to come out of that mourning. It says all of his sons and daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I'll go down to Sheol in mourning. So his father wept for him. You probably couldn't walk by Joseph's or Jacob's tent without hearing him sobbing, crying, and weeping day after day. And it's interesting as commentaries look at this. Some like Calvin re reproach him and say, hey, this was wrong. This was unbelief. He shouldn't have allowed this to, to, to consume him. But everyone who's experienced great pain and suffering knows that it's not quite that simple, right? You don't just go, okay, I just need to get over this and move on. So I hope as you read that story, you're like, wow, I can, I can relate to a lot of this. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him to Potiphar. So what I'm going to do at this point is I want to draw out some applications for you, but, but this is a habit that I want you to continue to develop. As you read the Bible, right, learn how to stop and go, okay, what is God teaching me? The Bible says all scripture is profitable to teach us, to correct us, to train us in right living, to conform us to the image of Christ, to bring us salvation. So let me suggest some applications. Number one, the church fathers, as they looked at this passage, felt that it was a great chapter to teach moral lessons about character. And I would agree with that. We have so many parents here who are raising their children. It is important to teach character. Children are not born with character. It is important to teach them right and wrong. Important to teach them virtues like honesty, humility, sacrifice, forgiveness. And the family is the place where we learn that. Now, the difference is we're not a bunch of godless, moralistic, therapeutic people just going, just do what's right, right? We understand that when we're teaching them character, we're, we're, we're forming in them an awareness of their own sin. As you come alongside your child and they do something like this, you don't go, how could you do that? The same way you did. So you come alongside and you say, I understand that emotion. When I was your age or I still struggle with that, and we talk about Christ, and we talk about forgiveness, and we talk about faith and repentance, and we talk about character formation. And so, for some of you, bear in mind that this may be speaking deeply to you. How could I imagine that there's not some here who have great hatred in your heart this morning? Maybe it's toward a, a person that abused you. Maybe it's toward a, a parent that's already deceased, or toward a spouse, or toward, toward a, a co-worker. Please learn from this, that hate will destroy you. And if you're a Christian, if you maintain that hate in your heart, you are inviting Satan to wreak havoc in your soul. Ephesians 4 says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give Satan a place. So I urge you to come to the foot of Jesus and say, God, help me to forgive that person. That doesn't mean God forgives them. 
Help me to forgive that person. Not because they deserve to be forgiven. But God, help me to forgive that person because you have forgiven me. Maybe you're struggling with envy. That's a, that's a, a difficult, you know, does she like him more than me? Did, did they get that promotion more than me? Are they better than me? Is my sibling better looking or more talented? Or do they have more money? If you're struggling with envy, the same solution. Go to Jesus. Be honest. Ask God to change you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So learn the moral lessons. Learn about lying, right? That it's never helpful to cover your sin with a lie. Proverbs 28 says, he that covers his sins will not prosper, but when you repent and forsake them, you'll find mercy. Maybe there's someone here that's having an affair, right? And God is nailing you right now for that. Repent of that. Stop lying. The Bible says, there's abundant mercy with the Lord, a broken and contrite heart. God will not despise. So there's some moral lessons. And then secondly, this is a great reminder to just go, okay, I have to learn how to rest in God's providence, right? As we go through this story, we're going to be like, oh my word, one thing after another. But remember, God is orchestrating all this. It's interesting, God's name, the name God isn't even mentioned in this chapter, but he's all through this chapter. His providence. And remember, whatever you're going through right now may be terrible, may be unspeakably difficult. God is not absent. Particularly if you're a Christian, Jesus hasn't forgotten you. Jesus hasn't forsaken you. And even if you'll never understand in this life why it's happening, as the songwriter said, when you can't see his hand, trust his heart. Remember, men might mean it for evil, but God means it for good. The third thing is to remember that suffering is a part of the calling of God's people, right? That, that somehow you cannot avoid suffering. So if you're a parent, your number one goal, though you might try to protect your child from all suffering, is to understand that you need to prepare your child for suffering because we're all going to suffer, but uniquely when you're a Christian. So I, I differ deeply with Joel Osteen that God wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy all the time. The Bible says through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And it's difficult, but it's character forming. And, it, and it's Christ's purpose to learn how to suffer in faith. And then fourth, we all have to learn how to manage our sorrow with future hope, right? Martin Luther lost a daughter, his precious daughter, Katie, when she was just a little girl, I think around seven years old. And I, and, and, and I read somewhere a letter that he wrote to his friend. And he said, I can't even pray. I beg you to pray for me, right? And some of you are in deep sorrow, and there's all kinds of reasons. Some of you may have just a, a, a depression that you're in. It may have been circumstantial. It may be biological. Some of you are, have lost a loved one, or you're going through unspeakable suffering, right? And anxiety and fears and sorrow. How do you handle that? Well, the last thing is to just go, oh, well, just turn your frown upside down, okay? But on the other hand, one of the things the Bible is really clear on is that the principal way, as Calvin says, to deal with sorrow 
is to console yourself with the hope of the future. If you are in Christ, weeping may last for a night, but there will be a shout of joy, even if it's not till Christ returns. Look beyond this world and remind yourselves, our suffering is temporary. And ground yourself in the hope that if you belong to Christ, that one day the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and your sorrows will be lifted and you and I will experience everlasting joy. If you don't belong to Christ, I have no comfort for you because you're living in this world, as the Bible says, without God and without hope. If you want to spend another year of hopeless living, go ahead. But I beg you, give your life to Christ. Begin to follow Jesus, and you will find that no matter what your sorrow, God's grace can sustain you. Remember also to let the life of Joseph point you to Jesus. Years ago, someone said, Joseph is a type of Jesus. And I said, I don't think so. New Testament doesn't say that. But as I read the church fathers, almost every one of the church fathers continually said, look at the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. His brothers conspired to kill him. The Jews conspired to kill Jesus. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph's brothers handed him to Gentiles. Jesus was handed to Gentiles. So as you're reading through this story, think about how Joseph is like a little mini picture of the Lord Jesus. But the last thing I want you to think about is this. When they saw Joseph and they said, let's just kill this guy, then we'll think about what will happen to his dreams. It reminds me of something that Jesus said. You see, when Jesus came to earth, he came to disrupt our lives. He didn't come to just give you free hell insurance and say, have it your way. He came to say, you need to come to me and let me be your Lord. You need to surrender your will to me and believe in me. And that's the reason why many people don't want to become a Christian, because they love darkness rather than light. They don't want Jesus to reign over them. They don't want God telling them they're wrong or, or how to change. In fact, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord? if you won't do what I say. Many people want the Savior part. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll take the free hell insurance. But Jesus came to be Lord and Savior. And he told a parable to illustrate this. He said, a guy bought a vineyard once, and he hired servants, and when the vineyard produced wine, he sent his servants to go get some. But the servants of the vineyard beat the servants who were supposed to get the produce. So he sent another servant. And finally, it says, he sent his son. And those wicked servants who were running the vineyard said this, hey, here comes the son. He's the heir. Let's kill him. And then this will be ours. And Jesus said, what do you think that, that owner will do when he comes? Do you remember what the Jews said about Christ? We won't have this man rule over us. How about you? Maybe, like Joseph's brothers, you've been fighting against Jesus. And he's saying, hey, man, I love you. Allow me into your life. Allow me to take the throne. Trust me. I will forgive you. I will come to you. If you've never done that this morning, you can invite Christ to be your Lord and Savior today, and he will forgive you and be with you the rest of your life. Many of us have done that, but I want to close by reminding you that this is not just something you do at camp when you're 12 years old. Oh yeah, I went forward and I threw my stick in the fire. That's the easy part. The real issue is, 
now living that way. The Bible teaches that every day, Christians, we're called to die to ourselves, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to live for him. Now, he doesn't leave us on our own to say, figure it out. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the Bible. He gives us the church, community, prayers, and power. But I want to encourage you as a church, pray that we will be a church where Jesus reigns over us as Lord, that we're not like, well, this isn't the way we do it nowadays. Whatever he says in the book, we want to do it God's way. And we want Jesus to reign. And we want to see his lordship bringing all of us out of our baggage, growing in grace, reaching our kids, making disciples. I'm so thankful for the Lord Jesus, aren't you? He's our only hope. Like, man, this passage is convicting. Yeah, but it's hopeful, isn't it? Because in Christ there's great hope. So let's turn to him as we close. If, you, if you've been convicted of hatred or jealousy or lying, right now give that to Christ and ask his forgiveness and repent. Just tell him, Lord, I'm sorry. I've sinned and I want to make it right. Give me strength from the Holy Spirit to change. If you're overwhelmed with sorrow this morning, ask God to help you to still rejoice in Christ, to look at the future and know that your salvation is secure. If you've been dissatisfied, discontent, or disillusioned by your circumstances, rest today in God's providence. And most importantly, I want to invite you, if God's speaking to your heart about your need for Jesus, today say, Lord, I open the, the door of my life. I invite you to come in. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died on the cross and you will freely forgive me. Please come and reign in my life and help me to grow into your image. Father, thank you for this church. I pray for every grieving person that you'll comfort them, for every parent that you'll strengthen them to raise their children for Christ, for every couple that you'll help them to work the hard work of growing a marriage for the glory of God. For those who are single and, and lonely or who have lost loved ones, we pray that you'll minister your, your peace and comfort to them. Thank you for this church and for all the good things Jesus is doing here for his glory. And for anyone that accepted Christ, Father, I pray that they would come and let us know and that we might help them to grow as a Christian. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.